Good morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for... Oh, for microphones. Are we on now? Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, technology and uh, thank you for people that know how to do technology a lot better than I do. And thank you that we could be gathered together here to worship. Um, Just uh, pray for your wisdom and grace and... Uh, Be strong in my weakness, Lord. Um, uh, Speak through me. uh, Bring a message to us. uh, Give us ears to hear. Uh, In Jesus' name, amen. Boom! Uh, Did I scare you? (laughs) Yeah, so, well, maybe, maybe not. Uh, Are you going to be scared tonight, though, when all those ghosts start... Coming to your house and ringing your doorbell? Well, I don't know, but um, there are some scary things afoot in our culture today. So, um, what do Halloween and the LGBTQ movement have in common? It, I would um, propose that it seems they do not properly value the body. Now, of course, uh, ghosts don't value bodies because they don't have bodies. And so what I don't get is, since they don't have bodies, why do they need all that candy? (laughs) But uh, as far as the other group, um, yeah, they they do have bodies, uh, but they devalue the importance of the body. I mean, I get it. We are a fallen race and uh, in a fallen world and we are all kind of messed up to one degree or another. And I realize that some people have some deeper emotional and psychological issues. But uh, not that long ago, if a guy said something like, um, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, people would be shocked. People would be shocked, but today, our culture at large, you know, people go along with it and even promote it and encourage it. And the idea is that the, quote, real self is the psychological self. The real me is who I feel that I am, regardless of empirical realities and evidences. And so even people without a, a dysphoric issues have bought into this idea. And it's so thoroughly permeated our society today that people who maybe don't have those same psychological issues just go along with it. Now the scary thing is that it's not just overtaking the culture at large, but is infiltrating Christendom. Now, Jesus told the church to go into the world and share the gospel, but the world is getting into the church. And not just people of the world because they're getting saved, that's a good thing, but worldly philosophies, and that's a bad thing. And some whole churches and denominations are buying into that kind of stuff. 
Next slide. Uh, yeah, but uh, this isn't the first time that something like that has been a problem. And like uh, a wise man said, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Now, the early church had to deal with kind of the same challenge. They were taking the gospel into the world, as Jesus had told them to do, but the world was trying to sneak into the church. And when we read letters from the apostles to the churches, we see them addressing the issue of false teachers and false teachings. And some of these seem to have uh, been some Hellenistic philosophies in seminal form. You know, and although the Bible um, scholars generally don't agree that there were, you know, kind of agree that there were not full-blown movements like that until subsequent centuries, they began to see these incipient forms of these Hellenistic philosophies that were trying to get into the church. And when they threatened the church, they were heresies that the early church fathers had to refute. Next slide, please. Now, contrary to a biblical worldview, a key error was this uh, Hellenistic philosophical dualism of the immaterial and the material aspects of the world. The spiritual, the immaterial, was seen as something that was higher, it was good, it was pure, and so forth. The physical world was low and evil, corrupt, it was bad. And so that was a serious threat to the church that it sought to seduce because the implications would be profound for both its Christology and its anthropology, its understanding of the person and nature of Jesus and of people. Because you see, the... um, the body, which would be part of the material world, they would see as inherently evil and bad. And today I would like to address the anthropological aspect of the matter. And in this context today, uh, I'm, you know, when I'm talking about anthropology, uh, I'm not talking about studying the ancient ones of the Americas or the aborigines of Australia and the Pacific Islands. Um, we want to look uh, at the other aspect, the philosophical or theological aspect. We want to look at the nature of man in the theological sense. What does it mean to be a human person? And I'll briefly state a biblical position and then sketch the misguided Hellenistic philosophy and some of its consequent harmful actions after looking at some related pathologies of society today, we'll review some New Testament texts where the writers are challenging some of these incipient forms of these philosophies that in later centuries became full-blown. And then finally, we will outline a biblical overview of the development of its anthropology and some of its implications. 
So what is the nature of the human person? The Bible teaches that people are embodied souls. We have this material and immaterial aspect, but they are united completely in one person and each affecting the other. So we are united beings, one person with these different material and immaterial together in one person. Now for the Greek dualistic uh, philosophers, this is rather uncomfortable. If the body, which is part of the material world, and therefore it's bad and corrupt and evil, you know, how is it to get along with one's spirit when you're looking at a, a personal level? And if the spirit is good and pure, how is that going to work out? And so in time, this led to two types of errors on one side or another. Um, there was uh, uh, asceticism on the one hand and profligacy on the other, debauchery on the other. Now, as far as the asceticism, the idea was that since the body is base and evil, it must be denied or punished into submission to one's spirit. And some took this to extremes. Some people would be ill-clothed, keeping themselves just barely from dying of exposure. Um, some would eat barely enough you know, to keep themselves alive. Some... Um, literally, uh, you know, flagellated themselves bloody with whips. And I remember reading in early church history stuff, I don't know what century it was, some guy, he lived, there's like a little platform on a pole, and he sat up there for like 20 years or something like that. I guess he'd come down and get a little stuff just enough to stay alive. But, you know, extreme asceticism and the, the flagellating and the not eating Now, I have not studied it enough to even make a hypothesis, but I have wondered if there's any philosophical or psychological emotional connection with such things as anorexia and cutting, which plague certain segments of our population today. So then, so there's uh, the asceticism on one hand, and then there's uh, profligacy on the other hand. And the idea was, since the, um, the spirit is good and all that and higher and the body is lower and corrupt and evil anyway, it doesn't matter what we do with the body. So my spirit, my mind is the real me. And the body doesn't matter, so it's just my body that's engaged in debauchery. It's just my body that's fornicating. It's just my body that's gluttonous. And it's lower and evil and corrupt anyway, and so it doesn't matter. The real me, my spirit, is pure. And so this dualism caused uh, you know, these serious uh, problems. Can you see the connection with the cultural moment today? Our modern or our postmodern iteration is maybe somewhat different. Our 21st century fruit has been modified by 18th, 19th, and 20th century philosophical husbandry. 
But if a man feels like a woman, that's what he is. The psychological self is the real self, regardless of the body. It doesn't matter, or one mutilates it to make it conform to one's mind. And also, biblically speaking, a man and a woman are designed physiologically as well as spiritually, I would say, to complement one another in an intimate relationship to fulfill God's cultural commission. But today, if a guy feels like he belongs in that kind of a relationship with another guy, the world says, that's good, that's okay, because that's, quote, really who he is, regardless of the lack of bodily complementarity. And so we see a, a 21st century iteration, I think, of this kind of devaluing the significance of the body. And so, and back in back to the Bible again. While there may not have been, uh, you know, related full flown, uh, full fledged, full blown heresies in the first century, uh, from the response of the New Testament writers it appears that there were some false teaching uh, that challenged, that they had to challenge that were these seminal forms of these kinds of doctrines. Uh, next slide. And so asceticism, uh, we see um, incipient forms of that in the early church that the apostles had to address. Sometimes that presented as legalism, and sometimes it, it was uh, more developed than that. We see Paul, when he's uh, addressing the Colossians there in 2, 16 to 23, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in the question of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions and puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If Christ, uh, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in, uh, in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things uh, that perish as they're used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And so it looks as though the, uh, the, the false teaching that was threatening the church there had a kind of a Jewish bent for the most part, but it looks as though there were these elements of Hellenistic philosophy that were present as well. 
You see in verse 18, it talks about they were insisting on asceticism. And this manifested, in verse 21, this manifested in legalism. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Those are you know, bodily things, you know, don't, don't do that. Um, so this asceticism manifesting as legalism there. And then he talks in verse 23 again about asceticism. and talks about whatever, we don't know the specifics, but severity to the body. Trying to um, beat it into submission or deny it and so forth. But he said, this is self-made religion. This is not what was revealed from God. This was man-made, self-made religion and is of no value in, in producing godliness. And uh, next slide then, please. And the other part, uh, the, the other error, the other side of the error is profligacy or debauchery. And uh, again, I have an example in, in 1 Corinthians for illustrative purposes. Um, won't have, you know, not the, the scope of expository uh, depth, but... Uh, to illustrate our thing here in 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20. Now, the, the, the church at Corinth, Corinth was, uh, was known for its debauchery. It was a port town, and the sailors been out at sea, and they came in, and uh, yeah, there's all kind of debauchery, even in the name of religion. And so um, there was a, a problem with uh, immorality, sexual immorality, and so forth there. In fact, uh, a really debauched person was said to have acted like a Corinthian. It was a byword. Um, and so we see uh, the false teachers there at Corinth, they were saying, all things are lawful for me. And Paul kind of responds, well, not all things are helpful. No, but all things are lawful. And he goes, but I will not be dominated by anything. Well, well food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. And God will destroy one with the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And see, the, apparently the false teachers were allowing or promoting this uh, immorality. And they're saying, it's okay, it doesn't matter, it's just the body, but you can have a pure mind and it's just your body that is doing those things. Uh, and then verse 14, God raised the Lord and he will also raise us up by his power. We'll come back to that verse a little bit later on. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. So he's saying it's not just your spirits that belong to Christ, but your bodies as well. All of you. If you're a believer, if you're a Christian, all of you belongs to Christ. You totally belong to Christ. Or do you not know that he is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her, for it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So the whole person is involved in that, and when it's an illicit thing, the whole person um, 
is uh, degenerate in that? Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So we see here, Paul is refuting this false teaching in the church at Corinth. And Paul's refutation sounds as though it's addressing more than simply the residual bad habits from their pre-Christian life. It seems to be a rhetorical dialogue engaging some of this pagan philosophy. But um, this pagan philosophy has sort of been Christianized, so to speak. It's though, uh, as though the false teacher is saying, I gave my heart to Jesus, but as far as the rest of me is concerned, whatever. Besides, I'm free in Christ, says the false teacher. I'm not under the law, so what does it matter? It doesn't really matter. It's just my body. Paul responds in verse 15, never stop it. That's not how it is. So how is it? How is it? Next slide. So what does it mean? You know, what does the Bible say about humanity? And going back to the beginning there, we see in Genesis The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. We see here that God is creating the human person by bringing together the material component and the immaterial component into one unified being. He becomes a person when God brings those together, the material and the immaterial, they come together. That is when he is united and he is a a full human being. So he takes the dust from the ground. He takes some carbon and hydrogen and oxygen, quite a bit of nitrogen thrown in there, some iron, a little bit of calcium, tiny bit of selenium. You know, and from the material world, that's, you know, where we came from. And he unites that with a soul that he He creates to form this complete human person. And so that's the way we are designed. That's the way we're meant to be. In Genesis 1, uh, 31, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. God created everything good, including people. He created not just the spiritual realm good, but also the material world God created good. Contra the philosophers about the the spiritual world being higher and better and the physical being lower, God created it all and it was very good. And our bodies are part of that material world that he made and he made it very good. And another thing uh, that kind of relates to our, uh, you know, the iterations that we are experiencing today in Genesis 1, 27, 28, 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So part of creating us good, part of creating us as bodily beings as well as souls is creating us male and female. And that is by design and it's very good and it matters. It is for his very good purposes and for one thing so that uh, he can fulfill, that we can fulfill the cultural commission that he gave us there in verse 28. We can't do that without the way he designed us. And I can absolutely assure you that when my daughters were born, neither I nor the doctor assigned them their sex or their gender. God assigned that before the creation of the world. And he made them as he so assigned them and designed them for his good purposes. And so we see that the Hellenistic philosophies are wrong and unbiblical. On the one hand, unfortunately, there's a sense in which the diagnosis is actually worse than they imagined. And on the other hand, from a biblical perspective, the prognosis can be even better than they could imagine. Because you see, according to the Greek philosophies, the the spiritual realm is good and pure, while the physical is low and, and corrupt. But biblically, we see that God created both very good. Unfortunately, you know, we looked at Genesis uh, 1, a couple chapters later, we see that, um, well, our forebears sinned. And, and since they were the, and we are the crown of creation and the stewards of creation, uh, their sin brought corruption, not only to our whole race, but to the rest of the world as well. And so it's not only that the, our, our bodies are messed up, but our souls are fallen as well. The spiritual realm is no better than the physical realm. They're both messed up. Everything's messed up because of the sin of our forebears. The immaterial aspects of our, ourselves are corrupt and not just the material part of that. But the good news is that Jesus came body and spirit, fully God, fully man, to totally redeem us, body and spirit as well. Next slide, please. So God, we see in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 14, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Then again in, in Colossians 1.18, And he is the head of the body, the church. 
He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So we are being saved, not just uh, our spirit, but our bodies are being raised. Jesus was the first fruit of the resurrection. He rose not just spiritually, he rose bodily. And he is going to redeem us that way too. And we also will have new bodies. And then again in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming those who belong to Christ. And um, I didn't get it on the PowerPoint, but uh, I think it was one of the texts that, that Matt talked about uh, last Sunday in First Thessalonians uh, chapter 4. For since we believe Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. That is, those who have died in Christ. Those For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive and are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first and then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So because Jesus was raised bodily, the first fruits of the resurrection, that means that those who are his have the hope of the resurrection as well. He redeemed, uh, he died to redeem us as whole persons our bodies matter, and so the, in the end, we get new ones. It does seem that for a while we will be disembodied spirits until the resurrection, but our eternal state is unified body and soul as we were originally designed and created. However, I, I do have a word of warning. In love, I must remind you that everyone will be resurrected. The eternal state of every person will be united body and soul, but only those who are in Christ will be enjoying God's presence as we were created to do. Those who have rejected God's plan to restore the broken relationship with him will be forever out of fellowship with him. But for those who are in Christ, nevertheless, um, not only are we getting new bodies, but ultimately God is restoring the rest of the world as well. And for those who have received Christ, John has a word in the Revelation for us. Next slide. A new heavens and a new earth. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, 
the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for the good news. Um, we acknowledge that the bad news is worse than the, the pagans thought, but the good news is even better. And that uh, you paid the price. You died on the cross to pay that price for us so that we could be restored to you. And that um, body and soul, all of us will be redeemed and brought together for forever with you and there's such a a joy and a and a hope and we thank you thank you in Jesus name amen